encounter the righteous, jealous love of God. It changes how we approach him. It changes how we relate to one another. It changes how we encounter him in his word. Go with me to Genesis chapter 38. See if you can see a very raw, very real moment through the eyes of a righteous, loving God who is jealous for you. He's not indifferent. He he isn't just okay with however we live our lives. He loves you more than life. Genesis 38, starting with verse 6. And Jacob's son, Judah, took a wife for his firstborn son, Ur. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of the brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. Verse 9, But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give an offspring to his brother. And what he did in the sight of the Lord was wicked. And so the Lord put him to death also. The word of God. Just say thank you. Just give God thanks for his word. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for his word. Lord, we thank you that you are not a disconnected God that makes a few rules that maybe we should should follow if we're going to be good citizens and good religious people. You're a loving Father who has a jealous love for us. You don't you're not indifferent. You're not uncaring. You are so caring that you are driven to righteous passion. And when your beloved children are mistreated, you are in outrage, in righteous outrage. And you see the very real encounters of our lives. And you see so much more than we see. And you have so much more purity and love in your eyes than we do. And we're asking you, Lord, that as we read your word and as your word reads us, that you would elevate our thinking, our believing, our feeling to be in line with your feelings your passions, your righteousness. We submit ourselves to you today and ask that you would change us and grow us as your beloved children. And everybody said, amen. Y'all, as you are finding your seat, can you give a hand to our worship team? That's for real right there. Man, if I can't preach after something like that, then I don't know. I want you to turn to your neighbor I want you to uh, recite a line from the, uh, what is now the cra- classic Christian film, Nacho Libre. Yeah. <laughs> say, turn to your neighbor, say, let's get down to the nitty gritty. You know, getting down to the nitty gritty is just what we're going to do. We made a commitment this year that we would go through the book of Genesis. And uh, chapters like chapter 38 is not something that we can skip over. And it's the nitty gritty. And just so you know, if you're a little nervous sitting in a church seat, 
I too am nervous standing on a church platform. But more than being nervous together, we can get into the raw and real and powerful things of God's word bravely, albeit nervously, and see what happens to your life and to your family and the love and mercy that you can encounter. That's way more than you signed up for today if you really and honestly approach God's word. We've said all year, Genesis is where your story begins. Only in the context of the story can you be recalibrated to rightly understand and live your story. God is a God of loving creation. If you know anything else, you can know that that's what Genesis means. It means the, the Genesis, the, generate, the generator, the beginning of all things. God creates. And because he's a loving creator, he creates good things And so much of Genesis is his creation in seed form. In fact, seed is a metaphor metaphor for Genesis at large. The book of Genesis is, is really a seed of history. So you can understand the things that you go through in life in seed form here in Genesis. So much of God's gift is given in seed form. You know, God gave us sex. God gave us family. These two amazing things that we see in Genesis, sex and family. And why is it that we tend to disconnect those two things, sex and family? We kind of tend to see them as two separate things, but that's not how they were generated to be. Sex and family are one gift from God. And the reason that we tend to separate them is because we're fallen from God. We've said to God the Father, I don't like your gifts. I'm going to do things my own way. We've tended to give heedance more to our preferences than we do to his purposes. And that's why we've seen, as a result, humanity trapped in selfishness and in death. So as we go through this series, this mini-series, these few chapters in Genesis, Trapped, I pray that we can approach God honestly, especially in this chapter, and see that we can see through the purity of who he is and how he's made, it, made us to be and designed us to act and think. We can be free from the traps that we put on ourselves. Now, last week we witnessed Joseph's first 10 sons being trapped in their own selfishness and jealousy. The 10 oldest sons sold their baby, son, their baby brother Joseph into slavery because they were jealous of him. They sold him into slavery because it was the nice thing to do after considering killing him, right? Some of them felt pretty proud of that. What you'll see ironically though is that though Joseph is in slavery externally, we'll see in the chapters ahead that his brothers were the ones who were really enslaved, trapped in their own selfishness and guilt in the years to come and follow after that. Now, Genesis takes a little aside from Joseph, and in a means of contrast to Joseph and what you'll see from Joseph's life in the chapters following, he narrows in on Judah's life and in his sons. We saw that very raw and very real moment of his first two sons dying. What we're going to see as we get into the the nitty-gritty here of Genesis 38 is God's great purpose for sexuality. I hope that we can all, all of us, be set free from the trap of our own opinions and preferences 
when it comes to sexuality or any other gift that God gives us. Now, Ur and Onan, Judah's first two sons, chose their preferences for God's institution of family. Instead of acting in league with God's desire for family and for sexuality, they chose to do things their own way. And they even defiled God's precious creation in Tamar, precious daughter of a living God. And so they died. Now, as we a few thousand years later consider God's purpose for sexuality, let me say that one good reason to discover God's purpose for sexuality is so that he won't kill us. Okay? That's a good reason. Anyone say amen to that? But let me say, there's even, there's even more reasons than that. I was going to say better reasons, but not dying is, is a really good one. There's joyful, righteous, loving reasons that we can encounter God's purpose for sexuality. And that's just what we're going to do today. We're going to connect with a loving father's heart and how he created us. We're going to pick up in verse 11. Now two out of three of Judah's sons are dead. And in verse 11, it says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that Shelah, too, would die, just like his other two sons. See, he thought, he thought Tamar was somehow cursed. What he didn't see is that his sons and his thinking, the men were the ones who were cursed here. Verse 12, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died, and Judah was comforted. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the the road to Timnah. So she kind of caught him in his way. For she saw that Shelah, his, his third son, was already grown up and had not been given to her in marriage as promised. Now, let's stop there for a minute. In the ancient Middle East, women relied on solid family structures, not just for their progeny, but for for their sustenance, not just to bear a great lineage, but to actually survive. They needed solid family structures to protect them. You know, they didn't have many of the privileges that in Western society we've grown accustomed to since Jesus has turned the tide on humanity. And we we grow accustomed to certain privileges in our culture that women can have. In the ancient ancient Near East, a woman, especially a childless widow, it was almost like a death sentence. Without a child to, to take care of her as she grew in old age, she had no sustenance, no protection. Without solid family structures, Tamar was essentially left for dead here. And there was a promise of life given to her, but never actually acted upon by Judah. That she would have an heir, that she would have a husband, and a chance to to bear a child through Shelah, the third son. See, God's righteous law that was kind of uh, hinted at here when Judah told his second son, Onan, before he died, he said, perform the duty of a brother-in-law. That that duty of the brother-in-law is to take the, the widow under your house, to care for her, to give her a child. It's further extrapolated, and if you want to make a little note, uh, Deuteronomy 25, the righteous law of God is given. 
this protection's laid out. In fact, the Sadducees later uh, questioned Jesus about this law. But this law was important because the protection of being in their house was one thing, but the seed of the brother-in-law was the other thing. To give them an heir, not just to give a name to the deceased brother-in-law, but as I said, to give protection to Tamar. Now, Ur was an evil man, her first husband, and he died. Onan, his brother, didn't want to accept this righteous law that was given to God's people. He didn't want to see family in an elevated mindset in the way the loving father had created an instituted family. I don't know why. Why is it that you and I often don't think of family in the way that we should? Not only did Onan not think of family the way God created it, but he didn't think of his own sexuality the way that God intended him to think about it. See, he had a debased, selfish view of sexuality. Seeing sexuality as something as merely subject to his own preferences. Now, does that sound familiar at all? In public school, really, that's what I was taught. Like, sexual preferences and sexuality in general. I mean, I, I learned about sexuality and sex ed before I even really knew how to read. And what I was taught was, really, it's just something about you and your preferences. And, and if anything, just try not to hurt anybody and get a disease, because that's good for all of us. Ne- never was I taught that sexuality is something that belongs to something bigger than you and your desires and your preferences. It's something that is meant to be in the protection of something greater. I wasn't taught that. Now, look, I can't blame my depravity and how I treated young women before I knew Jesus. I can't blame that on public schools. That was, that was all my doing. But when God started to show me some of the things that we are going to wrestle with today, it hurt in a redemptive way. Because sex is something much more than I was willing to accept at the time and something so much more than Onan was willing to accept. He was supposed to perform the duty of the brother-in-law, but instead he, he was Selfish. He didn't want to give his brother an error, but it didn't stop him from ravishing his sister-in-law for his own sexual pleasure. And so God did what any loving heavenly father would do. He killed Onan. So Onan's dead here. And Tamar is a widow twice over, and she continues to wait upon what was promised to her by Judah. In giving, Judah said he would give Sheila. Man, Sheila is a very unfortunate name for a boy, is it not? Anyway, Judah said, <laughs> Judah said that he would give Sheila to her as a husband, and he didn't. Year after year went by. And Tamar is, is getting older and older, and she's vulnerable here. And Judah would not fulfill his promise, and so she decided to go confront him directly, albeit with a shroud, in the most shrewd of ways. Let's pick up in verse 15 here. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Time out. 
Nowhere in Genesis here does it say that Tamar dressed like a prostitute or was being seductive or any of those things. It says that Judah thought she was a prostitute. Judah had been for some time without his dead wife. He hadn't been with a woman for some time. And so his disposition to see Tamar as a prostitute was more indicative of his own feelings than it was of the way she was being. And there's a little note here for all of us guys. Men, can I just get in your business for a second? Even if not, I'm the one talking up front. So, <laughs> look, no matter how a woman acts, behaves, dresses, if you decide to see her as something less than God's created her to be, and you decide to process things in your mind like that, that is 100% your decision. And you 100% need to stop and approach a merciful, loving father today, as do I. He saw her as a prostitute. didn't say she was dressed like a prostitute. Verse 16, he turned to her and begins to treat her like a prostitute. It gets graphic here, okay? Verse 16, he turned her on the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me in return to come into me? In essence, she's saying, Will you give me what you've been promising? lest I be left here for dead? Verse 17, he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Somewhat of an indication of how he valued her, much less than God. And she said, well, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and the staff in your hand. The indications, the physical indications of his, his very personhood, his identity. And so he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil, and she put the, on the garments of widowhood. You see, because Judah, too, didn't see Tamar in light of God's loving, providential viewpoint. And he didn't see family rightly. He didn't see his responsibility within God's family as he should have. He had a debased, lessened, reduced mindset as we all tend to have. He thus started treating her, as his sons did, like a prostitute. But that doesn't mean she was acting like a prostitute. She was just waiting on the Lord for what was promised to her. Now, I'm not saying she wasn't being a little deceptive, but she was righteous as she was waiting on the Lord. And she would receive what Judah owed to her. It goes on in verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside. And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. 
Verse 22, he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. And the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. Anytime the Bible repeats something, we should learn something from that. Judah replied, let her keep the things on her own. Otherwise, I'm going to be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Okay. See, in his shame, he wants to just blow it off. And God repeats, Judah, Judah, no cult prostitute has been here. Almost a, a, a very clear message that he just wasn't catching. It's very interesting. I've heard it said before, you don't tend to see things as they are. You tend to see things as you are. Judah was looking for a prostitute, not because she was a prostitute, because, but because Judah was the prostitute. There was no cult prostitute. Judah was just failing to see things the way they, they were. He was seeing things the way he was. How is that like me and you? What are things that you are looking for in life, but they just aren't there? They're not there. You're seeing things wrongly. Maybe you're trapped behind a false lens, a, a lens of fear, perhaps. And God wants to remove that lens so that you can rightly see yourself for the precious being that you really are so much more than you tend to see yourself. And you can see everything else through God's eyes too. There is no cult prostitute. There is no fear that you can fear that's comparable to the love that's been given to you. There is no destruction and poverty that you need to continue to submit to. It's not there. What are things that we tend to see that just aren't there? Something that God needs to remove from us. See, Judas sees through the, the lens of his perverse eyes, and he's going down a road that's going to lead him to the same place his sons were in. Making a bad decision and trading it in for a worse decision, as you'll see. Until the righteousness of God through his daughter-in-law Tamar is revealed and gives him a moment of repentance. Pick up in verse 24. Three months later, after Tamar had conceived the baby by Judah, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and burn her. And she was, as she was being brought out, she sent word to Judah, her father-in-law, she said, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And I can only imagine what Judah felt in his gut when asked that question. His response, verse 26, Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Sheila, and he did not know her again. She protected, he protected her and, and this baby. We know later that this baby is Perez. And what's amazing about this is 
Perez, 36 generations later, would give birth to Jesus. The promise of redemption for all of us. Before I go deeper into this whole thing about God's purpose for sexuality, I just want to take a moment to exult for a moment. God's redemption is not like we think it would be. It's not some whitewash, plastic rhyme of religiosity. We follow a few rules. We sing a few songs. Let's not get into particulars about hard and difficult history. No, he gets right into the middle of the most difficult places, and that's the seeds of the most redemptive and glorious things. How much does this say about the reliability of the Word of God, which is second to none? God doesn't brush over the, the, the very difficult and hard things in his word. He goes and moves right in and through them. And what about your life? What are things that you might want to shamefully cover up? That he's wanting to not just brush away into the past, but to bring forth, to heal to purify so that your mess would become your message. So that he would purify something that might bring you pain and you can speak of and he can bring life to. What are those things that we, we want to hide in? But he is wanting to expose and heal. If he can move through this junk, he can move through your junk. Can anybody say amen? Is anyone with me here right now? Now, that leads me to really want to consider specifically one takeaway about God's purpose for sexuality that is really important for all of us to grasp. Can you stay with me? God's purpose for sexuality is just what Tamar grasped and just what Judah and his sons failed to grasp. It's very simple, very profound, and very easy to fail to see. What is that? Thank you for asking. Let me answer this question by saying that one takeaway about sexuality, I'll just quote Jimmy Evans, founder of Marriage Today. He says, Our sexuality was not created for our selfishness, but for the family. In essence, your sexuality is so much bigger than you. My life is not my own, I sing. You don't belong to you. you. You belong to someone greater than you. And to the degree that you see that is the degree that you live you rightly. It's created for the family. Why is it that when we come to we talk about sexuality, we tend to focus more on our preferences than we do on God's purposes? And we try to go battle to battle with my opinion versus your opinion. It's fruitless. We need to think less about sexual orientation and more about sexual origination. God originated sex for the family, not so that you and I could argue about it, not so that I could do what you, I want, you do what you want, we do the best we can, and let's see what happens. No. Sex is for the family. Ur and Onan failed to see that, that God had a greater design that they were unwilling to submit to 
when it came to sexuality. I don't think any idea is a more dangerous and hotly debated topic in our culture today than that of the issue of sexual orientation. What's sex for? My opinion, your opinion. Let me say, church, it's far too easy for us as a church to win and lose the arguments at the same time. We're so apt to win in arguments that just aren't as important to God and aren't as helpful to other precious people who he's created. And we need to be very, very careful. My opinion about sexual preferences, orientation, behavior versus your opinion, we can go into gridlock and back and forth and my ideas, are they better than your ideas? We can win and lose because that's not the point. It's not about my individual orientation or opinion or preference versus yours. The point is, it's so much bigger than an individual thing. Sex is for the family. It's not for us to argue about me versus you. It's not for my preference versus your preference. For years in my younger adulthood, God came against my opinions Practices, appetites, preferences, and it hurt for year after year after year. Because listen, he saw things way before me. He saw things way after me. And the most loving and merciful thing he could do was to bring me the pain of reorienting my thinking, my doing, my seeing. I did not see in the difficult moments where I thought, how can I start to see things differently? How can I wait until marriage? How can I, how can I, how can I? God said, beyond how can you, how can I remake you, rewire you in my light? See, he saw things that I didn't see. He saw decades later that I would be holding my two-year-old And if it wouldn't have been for decades before him taking me through some very difficult stuff, I wouldn't be holding this person. He sees her. He sees her children when he is considering my behavior right now. He sees things so much more lovingly, passionately than you do and I do. Sex is for family. God didn't create the greatest gifts so that we could debase and pervert them in the image of our own preferences and arguments. Sex is holy, with an H. And it's holy, with a W, for the family. Now, I'm not just saying procreation within family. Sex is also for family. When we when we see in marriages that are sanctified by God, a man and a woman relating to one another, invigorated by the trust, intimacy, sacrifice, that's in, in camaraderie and fun that's developed within a holy union and the sex that's a part of that, hallelujah. We see from that a picture of God and how he relates to each other, how the Trinity is united in trust, in joy, in peace. And the only reason we struggle to see that is has more to do with our perversion and less to do with how holy he really is. God is three in one and he is holy, related, and sanctified. 
And when a, a marriage is united together in joy and peace and trust, it sends a picture to the world and to the coming generations and to children that life is so much more about what you think it is and what you live for. We are made in the image of God. And to the degree that we reflect that image is the, is the degree which we, we reject our basal desires in favor of something much greater that we were created for. And when, when, the, when our children see that, it's a powerful thing. And let me ask this. When they don't see it, what's at stake? Where do your greatest hurts come from? To have something to do with marriage and sex and parents. It's who God is. Why is the enemy so against marriage and family and babies? And why why must we be extremely brave, though we be nervous, when we talk about a loving father's creation and things like sex and marriage? And why is he so jealous to win you back to himself? And why does he concern himself so much with what you perceive to simply be your body? your sexuality. Because it's a greater worth than you might be willing to receive. Sex is for family. Now part of that is also the procreation of children. Malachi 2, God is judging his nation because he says that they've prostituted themselves against me, going after other gods. He judges them. And in verse 15 of Malachi 2, it says, did he not make Man and woman, one with a portion of the spirit in their union? Is not marriage something so much more than just a human institution? And what was God asking and seeking? Godly offspring. See, God wants marriage to be such a rush of joy and devotion, sacrifice and intimacy that it shows a piece of who he is to a fallen world. And part of who he is is creator. So in a family, when sex and family are sanctified before him, part of what happens is the procreation of children. That's how God builds his kingdom and establishes his house. Psalm 127, it says, Unless the Lord builds its house, his, the laborers labor in vain. Why is it that so many people in life ventures, we're looking, what's my purpose in life? And all we see is vanity and emptiness. Because God's not building the house. God's not in the middle of your life. God's not the center of your career aspiration. But why is that? How does God build his house and advance his kingdom? It answers that question in verse 3 with an abrupt, abrupt shift in Psalm 127. Here's how the Lord builds his house. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. That's how God builds his house. That's how God wants to build your life. He doesn't want you to just live the best life you can live and try to be a decent religious person. He wants so much more. He wants to multiply his goodness through you, through family. The joy of sex. Sex is a joyful thing when it's not debased. Why is it that it's difficult to receive this? You know, family is not just about procreation, but according to God's word here, 
You can't really disconnect procreation from family either. Sex is meant to be sanctified, but why is it that we participate in life ventures and sexuality and things that are so much less than what God designed us for? What are things in our lives that, sex or otherwise, that we tend to to seek for our own pleasure, but not in a way that contributes to the next generation? It's just about me. It stops at me. It's not contributing to anyone, anyone that would come after me. God's not happy with that. He has so much of a desire for you in your life than you would for you. God gave us a good gift in sex and in family. But I'll say this. Our struggle to receive and understand that, that sex is a good gift, has very little to do, family, with whether or not it's a good gift. Our struggle to understand sex has little to do with sex. Our struggle has everything to do with not rightly understanding the giver of the gift of sex. Why do we struggle with sexual things? It has very little to do with sex. It has so much to do with how we perceive a loving father who gives good gifts. When you think of Ur and Onan, they were trying to do the best that they could in life without encountering the heart of a godly father. And if you try to do the best you can in life without encountering God's heart, your efforts will be just as vain and you'll go through the same cycle of hurts over and over again. We need to seek God's heart when it comes to sex or anything else that he gives. Now, I was shown a piece of God's tender heart this week. I had taken our staff up to Dallas for a conference. And the last night of the conference, my, uh, our third baby, our two-year-old Alma, got terribly sick and was admitted to the hospital. Um, it was just a weird gastrointestinal thing that uh, could have been extremely uh, grave for her. And that whole night, I just couldn't focus. Like something in my chest, I just, nothing else. I couldn't really focus on any of the stuff that I was supposed to be learning. I was so concerned about my baby. We were driving home, and, and uh, we drove in the, middle of, in the middle of the night to get home. And uh, I went to get some stuff from my house to give uh, to my wife, who was in the hospital with Alma. I got to kiss Alma when she was sleeping, and then kiss uh, Beth, our, our babyest of the babies, who was quote, sleeping as well. Um, and then I rushed home because I needed to care for uh, my oldest kids so that uh, my wife could be in the hospital. And I was burdened all morning. Just, God, help them. Um, a few hours later, my wife texted me and just said, you know, things are, are going better, almost feeling better. And in fact, she was starting to play in her playroom, which was her hospital room. And her and, and Beth were going back and forth and playing. And, and then I got a text with this picture that I'm going to show you. And that is my youngest in a, in a Superman costume she had gotten that day when they were waiting in the, in the hospital. And I can't tell you how immediately I went from worry about the things that I was encountering in my, my rough day that, at that point. I went from worry to I can't describe what I was feeling. Um, 
And you might rightly be asking, okay, Peter, that's a cute picture, but what does that have to do with anything? Like Judah and his sons and Tamar and sex and all that. Well, thank you for asking. It has everything to do. When God sees you, he sees more than you see. When God encountered Judah and Ur and Onan, he was witnessing much more than some men with some improper behavior and dishonorable conduct. He was seeing his precious daughter Tamar treated in in a way that just totally robbed her of her dignity. And you know what? He was seeing so much more than that. He was seeing a, a family lineage in jeopardy. 37 generations later, his very son would come in to redeem all of us back into his family. And what he saw was something he was greatly passionate about, much more than you see and I see. When he looks upon you, he has a greater passion and concern for you and for your life and for your body than you have for your own needs and your own desires and your own preferences and your own pleasures, your own worries. You are a precious child of God. And God has designed you to be brought back into a royal family, not just to be a part of a religious thing that you follow some rules to the best that you can. You're a child of God, and he is a loving, passionate, jealous father. When he looks upon you and your actions, he doesn't just see you trying your best to live the way you can. He sees life and death in your actions. And he sees the result of it being so much more than the things that you tend to worry about today. The more you see yourself through the eyes of a loving father, the better you will and less destructively you will behave and think in ways that relate to your body or your sexuality or your purpose in life. Now, fast forward. When I think back, actually, of what I was feeling that night, driving through the night, I, I was pleading with God. I was saying, God, you have, you've given me this gift that I didn't even know would, was even possible when I was diagnosed as infertile. And now I have three other babies, but I cannot afford to lose this one. I was pleading with God, God, you know that I'm not wired to be able to handle losing my child. You know, God let me sit on my worry for hours there. And then he brought assurance to me, and he said, Peter, Alma's going to be just fine. But now you see a little bit more what it's like to face separation from just one of your children. You see the ju- just a piece of my greater, more righteous, more jealous love that I had for you, Peter, when you were separated from me in your debased thinking, in your unholiness. You see now the, the contrasting passion of why I was driven to make the most drastic of decisions ever made when I set my very son as a substitution for you on the cross. When Jesus died the death that we should have died, it was to bring us back into the family. Would you stand to your feet with me? I'm going to ask the growth group leaders to come up.
Here's what God wants you to know right now. You are not expendable. If it was just you that was separated from a holy God, the loving Father would have chosen to send his Son for you. That was his choice. Now, what's your choice? Let me help you. Your choice is not made by your best intentions or what you think your heart is. God knows the choices you're making. I don't. I can't judge you. I struggle judging myself rightly. But God knows where you are before him. Now, I'm pretty confident that there's some people in this room, based on your lifestyle, the way you live, it's not just that you're doing things that grieve God with your body or your heart. It's that you're walking in a manner that's separated from a loving father. God knows who you are. He's not okay with that. Listen, this isn't a behavior issue. This is a relationship issue that bears fruit in behavior. Now, What is the loving Father saying to you? He's not okay with you being separate from him. If it was just you, he would cry out to you and say, come back to me. In your life, in your actions, you ready for a bold moment? I want you to participate in this. Lord, help us to open our ears to what you're saying to us beyond what I'm saying. If in your life and in your actions you are living separately from a loving Father and if he is saying, come home, my child, right now is a moment to respond that you will tell your children of one day. He sees them. He sees you telling your children this. But this is your moment to respond. He has boldly stated what he wants. Now it's your turn. If he's saying to you, my child, this is not just about sex or your decisions. This is about you receiving me as your father. I've already chosen to receive you as my child. Would you receive me? If that's you and the father's saying, come home, I want you to boldly and bravely leave your seat right now and walk right up front. Go ahead. Give you a moment. There could be just one. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you. I'm going to give a moment for all of us, too. As you consider this last song before I come back up and close, there are things that all of us are trapped by. We're trapped into thinking of God as less than he is, as less than a loving father. And as a result, we tend to to think and behave in ways that are less than we're designed to think and behave. Now, as we sing this last song, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, what are you speaking to me that I am to trade 
the way I think for how you see me? What are you speaking to me? Now, if anyone for any other reason needs prayer, we are available for you, especially during this last song. And I'll come back up and close.